It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. As always, I am your host, David, and I've got my buddy Chris on the line, and it's been a while since we talked, Chris. Uh, It's good to see your ugly mug on the video and hear your voice. Well, it's good to see your pretty face there, David, because I know you're so handsome. Oh, so. I know, I know. Don't, don't sweet talk me while the recorder's on. How you been? Uh, good. How are you? Um, the same. Uh, we're getting into the part of late spring, early summer that I really enjoy. It was like 65 degrees here today and no humidity. Uh, just great. Yeah, no, it's part. it was perfect weather. Uh, took the dogs for a walk, rode the motorcycle, so I was good. Drinking a what kind of beer is that you're drinking? It's uh, Brewdog Elvis Juice. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Literally called Elvis Juice. I. I uh, it's a it's a great fruit infused IPA. I'm trying to find where this is because I don't think Amy you would think it's like Memphis area and it is not. I can't remember. Oh, I looked this up like. The other day. Anyway, not that important. Why does it get the name Elvis Juice? I don't have a clue. Um, I don't have a clue. And I don't know why. I'm just getting you coming out of my left ear. But no worries, man. I'll battle through. Um, so speaking of Elvis, uh, obviously he was kind of, you know, well, not kind of. He is known as the king of rock and roll. But um, another one of the kings of rock and roll died today, Little Richard. And in all honesty, uh, Little Richard had – as just a big of an impact, I think, as Elvis did. If you if you listen to the Beatles, they weren't listening to Elvis. They were listening to Little Richard. Um, Bob Dylan, you know, has wrote a wrote kind of a letter today. Said that everything he did in life was because of his love for Little Richard. And Jimi Hendrix played in Little Richard's band, and um, you know, he wrote his own music, which is you know, Elvis didn't exactly do all of that. Um, and uh, just really one of the the forefathers of of rock and roll and. Uh, a lot of the people that we listen to, they grew up listening to him, and, and uh, sadly, he died today. Yeah, you know, the thing that struck me about him more than anything was just the the voice. It was a very unique voice that he had, the vocals. And when he said that, you know, maybe more important than Elvis and all, I mean, this is all debatable. And it seems like anytime somebody dies, that's when everybody was saying Chuck Berry was the most important. Now, literally, Richard died, he's the most important. But it's all subjective, man. I, I think that somebody said it best i can't i can't remember what they said how they described it but 
you know, because I think Elvis did come. I can't remember who came first, but anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the fact that Elvis didn't write his own and all. I mean, I, I mean, those those three are definitely right up there. And then I can think you can throw Buddy Buddy uh, Buddy Holly in there, Buddy Holly Crickets, but they're they're the most important, you know, for sure. As far as what laid the blueprint for rock, and I think with Little Richard, the thing, like I said, it, it's. It, yeah, he, he was a, a skilled piano player, but uh, you, you think Jerry Lee Lewis like that for that stuff. It, it was the vocals for me. It was star power for me. Um, yeah, like I said, all, all debatable as far as who's the most important. I mean, I'm going to still say it's it's Elvis without question. But you know, I'll go back to I'll go back to John Lennon. Before there was Elvis, there was nothing. <laughs> but. Um, Again, man, it, it, it's uh, yeah, and I, and he, it's, it's amazing how many people he influenced because I saw on, on social media people like Gary Holt of, of you know Slayer and Exodus commenting, you know, what he meant to him. And uh, if you watch any, if you watch any kind of interviews on on uh, Lemmy, huge influence, huge influence was Little Richard. So uh, yeah, he was an important one, and it sh- honestly probably showed a lot of people how to be a front man. Yeah, his stage presence and his flamboyant. I I thought this was funny. Steve Gorman tweeted this out today. He said, "I met Little Richard twice. Once for thirty seconds in an elevator at the Hyatt uh, on Sunset in nineteen ninety. Then at the Kennedy Center Honors in two thousand. A solid hour in the room for rehearsals. Both times I felt like I was standing next to a nuclear reactor. Uh, that's cool. The the one that I liked that I saw on on social media was uh, when we find it. It it was Johnny Knoxville, and he he gives this. It's pretty long. I'm not going to read it all, but he talks about, you know, just sad to hear. And then he says, um, scrolling through this, says, my first job in Los Angeles was working at the Riot Hyatt in on Sunset as a bellman. Little Richard was living there at the time, and he boarded the elevator with me one afternoon. My heart was racing with excitement, but an 18-year-old self maintained my composure just enough to smile hello. He looked down at my name tag and said, Philip, bless you, my son. And he said Philip is the, the first name that he, he says it's his first name that he really used. But anyway, he, just, he said, I thought that was pretty damn cool. The, you know, cool way to get started in L.A. Bless you, little Richard. You will be missed. That was Johnny Knoxville. I thought that was really cool. Well, he must it must have been the same time Gorman saw him because I, I left part of Gorman's tweet out. He said the Hyatt Riot House. He lived there. Yeah. He lived there. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Because, um, um, yeah, he... Yeah, he, Knoxville says this. You know, he says he was living there at the time. So, yeah, I'm sure many people saw him there. Anyway, so another one gone, and you start thinking about who's left, and really from that era, it's it's got to be uh, it's got to be Jerry Lee. Yeah, I mean, well, that that is it. But then and then you start getting into the 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 next phase, which was really it seems like years and years apart, but they were actually very close together, and that's the Stones. Right, you know they they weren't that far long after, you know, Little Richard, Elvis, Jerry Lou, all that, Jerry Lee Lewis, all that. It sounds like it seems to people like they started in the seventies and all, but you and I both know. I mean, it's that mid sixties range, and they're they're all around. And of course, you still got uh, Paul McCartney and Ringo. Then I guess you go Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend. After yeah. that, I mean, who is there? Yeah, um, yeah. As far as that really really early wave. Yeah, because Pink Floyd wouldn't become popular to the 70s, even though they started in 67, but they would have been a little bit behind that anyway. Um, the Kinks. Yeah, and even when I said, even when I said, uh, like, The Who, that's even that's a little bit too late, because then you got to start throwing in Zeppelin and all that. But the, right. the real early, the real early, I'd say it's just the, the two Beatles and the Stones. That's and, a, 
And and how how about Jerry Lee's the one that's outlived all those people? You, I guess if you knew him back in the day, you probably wouldn't think he'd make it to forty. Yeah, yeah, wild man. Remember, well, I mean, geez. And then, as I said, a few years after, look at the Rolling Stones. I mean, how is Keith Richards alive? I mean, I know I know everybody jokes about it, and there's a ton of them. So I'm not gonna just pile on with the recycled jokes. But my God, how's that man still alive? Have you seen the meme? It says, um, it says Keith Richards awakens from the uh, COVID-19 virus or whatever. He, he surveys the land. He sees a shadowy figure in the, in the distance there. Uh, he walks up on the shadowy figure. It turns around. It's Betty white and she's wielding a sword and she says, draw Keith. You knew it would come to this. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Speaking of the stones, they actually, for the first time in forever, put out uh, some new music, a song called living in a ghost town, uh, which I thought, for their modern day output, it's actually really good. It's got a really cool kind of funky bass groove on it. And uh, they apparently are working on a new album and had recorded this uh, about a year ago and then went in, now that we have the, the COVID-19 stuff and everybody's at home, kind of altered the lyrics to you know kind of resemble that. But uh, kudos to them for putting out new music. And it's not it's not terrible. I mean, it's actually actually pretty good for some guys in their 70s to still it's it's always amazing to me you know you've made it that long that you still have that fire in your belly to put out new music yeah it really is and, and i wasn't even aware of this song until you told me about it so i went and i went and looked it up and i'm like you i thought it was you know it was it's pretty pretty decent you know especially when you think it's over 50 years and, and the thing that get, cat gets me more than any is Jagger still sounds good. Yeah. He still sounds like Jagger. I don't know. Go ahead. I was just saying, you see so many of these guys that'll put put out records there. They're recording for years, and you hear the voice, and it's just, it's not the same. And I know he can't do everything that he did when he was 30, but he, for the most part, it doesn't really sound like that aged of a voice. Did you watch any of the COVID-19 kind of uh, telethon? It was on a couple of weeks ago. No, I didn't. So the Stones were on there and they did you can't get all you can't always get what you want with Jagger starting off on acoustic guitar and then Richards comes in, Ron Wood comes in and then Charlie Watts comes in then it's a Zoom thing and it's four screen. They honestly sounded better than anybody on the on the whole thing. And you know, and they're in their mid 70s. It just blow, it blows my mind. Yeah, well I mean they've got to be pushing Probably some of them are pushing late seventies at yeah, this yeah. point. Yeah, I think you may. And I don't even know. I don't even know their ages, but I think they may get in, be some of them get in the late seventies. So yeah, and when you've been recording for since well 62, over fifty years, yeah, yeah, well over fifty. You're getting close to sixty years. It's well, pretty remarkable. Well, speaking of Elvis juice, um, I know you've got to be excited. Your boy Glenn Evil Elvis Danzig. Uh, they released a. Uh, yeah, see the Danzig shirt you've got on. They released a, a, an album of Elvis covers. So, what's your take on it? Well, it's really, and it's really just. It's not they as in the band. It's just Glenn, and uh, I actually I really like it. You know, I, I didn't know what to think. I thought it was a cool idea. You know, Glenn's always been you know, his nickname is Evil Elvis. He he does have a similar sound. You can tell that he was heavily influenced by by Elvis Presley, and so he does this this album, and it's called Danzig's. I think it's just called Danzig Sings Elvis is the name <laughs> of it. And no sense, got, in, no sense in getting complicated. Yeah, well, you know, I read in the liner notes he said you know, 
that used to, like as, as he was growing up, you know, Glenn also, one of those guys that people probably think, oh, I guess he's probably about 50 or so. Oh, no. Glenn's, I think, mid-60s at this point. And um, at least early to mid-60s, 60s, I know. And he talked about when he was a kid, there was all these different artists that would do a tribute album to somebody that they, I guess, that was an influence on them. And even the album cover, the the font on it, kind of looks like a, a, a throwback to yesteryear. But, you know, he doesn't do just a bunch of the, the big hits like, you know, All Shook Up and Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock. and all. He, he doesn't do that, Suspicious Minds. He does, when you look at the track listing, One Night, Baby Let's Play House, Always On My Mind, and Out and Fever. And outside of those, if you're a very, very casual Elvis fan, you're not going to know him. But, oh, love me. I guess that one's kind of a bit known. But I think he sounds really good. I know where he's really got hammered is the production. You know, Glenn does all the production work himself now. And, look, I don't think it's that he's a terrible producer doesn't know what he's doing. He's done this long enough. I think it's the sound he was going for. And I know for you, if it, if it doesn't sound like, you know, they spent – you know, $80 million on it with Mutt Lang, then it doesn't sound good to you. But for me, I don't care shoddy about shoddy production, but this one, I guess at times is a little rough considering you would expect a lot more. I was actually going to bring that up because I, I listened to some of it and I was like, his vocals sound pretty good, but then it's, it's pretty muddy at times. Yeah. I mean, but it, but all in all, I mean, it, it's, I think it's a good album. It's good for what it is. You know, it, it's uh, I thought it was a cool way to pay respect and to somebody that influenced them, something different that people really aren't doing these days. And I like Glenn Danzig. I like Elvis. I like the album. Interesting. I, I, I mean, I've always heard you talk about how big of an Elvis fan he was. And then when you said he was putting out a Elvis covers album, I was like, well, Chris, this has got Chris written all over it. Yeah. Well, if, I mean, I've said if, before. If only he had David Bowie sing a duet with him. <laughs> yeah, I've said before on um, on this podcast that Elvis was really when we talk about what grabbed us with music. Elvis was first for me. You know, I was the first one. I remember as a little kid. So yeah, I, I'm I do consider myself not just because I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, but I do consider myself an Elvis fan, not a fanatic, but you know, I, I do like his music. It's funny how that works. I grew up in a Stones household. My dad was a big Stones guy. And so I always was kind of brought up with this like reverence for the stones and like, you know, you're saying that about, about Elvis and, you know, for a lot of people, it was the Beatles and, uh, it's kind of, I mean, when that's your first imprint, it's kind of hard to get away from it. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think even though I I said, it's not because I'm from Memphis, I'm sure that probably maybe, I don't know, but maybe that had, maybe that helped influence as far as my parents get me this poster that. To this day, I don't think I've seen a poster this big. You know, it was probably three times your normal poster. And I was probably about a four-year-old kid and had this on the wall of Elvis. But, you know, maybe it is because of the Elvis thing. But, I mean, living in Memphis. But I will say my mom was a really big Stones fan, too. And so I did grow up with that. Well, speaking of Elvis, you told me you were getting close to completing the Sam Phillips book. Did you ever complete it? Uh, Honestly, i got about 30 pages left, if that. So it's pretty much at the end. And, um, 
Yeah, it's it's a long read. It's uh, well over six hundred, well over six hundred pages, and it's called Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. And uh, look, if you if you're a historian of, of music, you love music like we do, I would highly recommend it. I mean, this is this is it's just fascinating to hear about how Sam Phillips got his start. Um, I mean, when he first started the Memphis Recording Service, he was recording. Because you got to think there weren't people weren't recording video back then of weddings and all, but Sam Phillips was uh, recording on acetate, recording uh, weddings, funerals, all this stuff. People would go and that's how he was earning a buck. And he was reluctant to even start a record label. That wasn't something he initially wanted to do. His love was radio. That was always his love. And and I read about this just how much of a footprint he had on, on radio all in the, the Memphis to Florence, Alabama, where his hometown, he was always involved in radio, but, uh, yeah, owning a record label, that wasn't really his thing, but it, he, he, he ended up doing that. I guess it was on his second try, his second attempt that it stuck with son. But anyway, it's, it's really cool because it's, it's, you hear about all these people that he, that he recorded, Elvis, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, B.B. King, all these people when they're just starting out. And some of them, honestly, were just falling into his lap. It's amazing the talent that was in and around Memphis, Tennessee, and, of course, coming from the Mississippi Delta. Just, and it's just fascinating here and just reading about it, the Elvis contract, or the RCA contract, him selling it. Um, you know, uh, Johnny Cash, when he left and went for Columbia, the, the way that he just kind of, you just got to read the book. It's, it's a, it's a very good read. Very good read. It's very interesting. And the dude was an eclectic man. I will say that. I didn't know how out there he was. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? I didn't, you know, there was one time when I was, and I remember this, I don't remember how old I was, but I do remember being at a, a restaurant and my dad saying, I believe that's Sam Phillips over there. And he didn't bother him. And honestly, Sam Phillips didn't mean anything to me at that point. I was, I was young. I mean, I wasn't eight, but I wasn't, I wasn't to the point where I'd appreciate the guy who recorded Elvis Presley and all that. But my dad does kind of look back at it in hindsight, you know, that I should have gone over there and just said hi. Uh, but no, never did meet him. I got but it's to, it's a excellent book. I got to meet him one time. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, my dad took me. Uh, you you're like a year younger than me. I'm sure you remember when they released the Elvis stamp at Graceland. I do. It was at midnight, and my dad took me and my friend up there, and um, we happened to walk upon. They were there, you know, it's news cameras from everywhere, and my dad goes, he just goes, "That's wait a second, that's that's Sam Phillips." And so my dad and I go and basically like stand right behind them. And it's Sam Phillips and Priscilla Presley and Lisa Marie Presley. And uh, I'm thinking like, oh, this is cool. I'm, you know, it's Priscilla Presley. And my dad, when he got done, my dad just turned and said, Mr. Phillips, uh, Mr. Hudson, it's just nice to meet you and shook his hand. And this is my son. And uh, we went on our way. And, you know, I was 12, 13 at the time, didn't realize it. And then now I realize like I literally met the guy that's probably, that's, partially responsible for a lot of the stuff I hear right now, you know, 
Uh, well, absolutely. You know, what, what he really talks about in the book, and I'm, I, I could go on and on and on about this, and I'm not going to bore everybody, but, I mean, hopefully it's not, not boring you if, if you're listening to us. And, I mean, <laughs> you know this is what you're going to get. But, um, you know, Sam Phillips grew up in, like I, I said earlier, he grew up in Florence, Alabama, and he grew up working in the fields and all that with black people. And he grew up around them singing and he talked about, he never really saw the the divide just with the way he was raised, the, the, what he was around. He didn't really see that. And so his whole focus when he got out and started recording these artists was to give a voice to these black artists that he thought had something to say that nobody would give a chance. Nobody would play their music. And that's really how he got started. And he kept thinking it was he was gonna it was gonna hit you know the first one first hit that he had was that Rocket eighty eight which I still think is one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever recorded and uh, maybe I mean you might could say that's the first rock and roll song right but but he uh, he kept getting close and I, and then finally I think it just kind of occurred to him it's it's not gonna happen I've got to get a white guy that can sing the music of the black people. And here comes Elvis Presley. And he found the perfect person to do that. And Sam Phillips really had a tough time with that because he felt like he was, he was given up on what he set out to accomplish. But he felt at the same time that if he did give this voice, it would open the doors for the black artists, which I think essentially it did. Yeah. So I think he, yeah, he was a very, I mean, very important person where it says the man who invented rock and roll. I think they're spot on on that title. And cool thing about this book too, is you get a lot of books that, you know, it's somebody writing a book and they're just doing research and they don't know the people and that's fine. And we both read books that way and, and really, really thoroughly enjoy them. But the guy who did this book, he's the one that did the two Elvis books that the, the series, the two books, you probably know what I'm talking about. He, uh, he got to know Sam Phillips and knew him for, God, I want to say at least about 20 years. So all these stories have been told directly. Most of these stories have been told directly to the author of this book. And they often, towards the end of Sam Phillips' life, they were talking about doing a book on him. So this is pretty close to an autobiography. That's, in- that's interesting. I, I may have to give that a try. It's 600 pages, though. It's pretty daunting. It's a commitment. But... um. Have you ever heard the song Carl Parkins Cadillac by the Drive-By Truckers? I have. Yeah, I love the line in there that Mr. Phillips was the only man that Jerry Lee would still call sir. Um, uh, Jerry, they, they all did that. They all called him Mr. Phillips. They all called him Mr. Phillips. It, and I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but you're talking about Jerry Lee. You know, He was the one, you read about him and it's everything you've always thought. He was the cockiest guy, wouldn't listen to anybody. But towards the end of Sam Phillips' life, he showed up at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock that night. He was supposed to be in Faraday. The governor had sent a private plane for him. He didn't like the plane <laughs> and he didn't like the weather. So he didn't go. And now all these people are trying to track him down. He just showed up at Sam's house one night and he apologized. He apologized. And what they said, that was so unlike Jerry Lee Lewis. He didn't do that to anybody, but he apologized for the whole scandal in London where he brought his 13 year old cousin. His wife, he said, I, I shouldn't have done that. And he told him he was sorry, and then he just started telling all the things that he did wrong. Which, And then Johnny Cash, his whole life, Mr. Phillips. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
That is that is really cool. Well, Chris, I tell you what, we've had you know almost two months now, basically being stuck at home, which uh, gives you a lot of time to to listen to music. And uh, as I'm sure you're well aware from my my text, uh, I have fallen hook, line, and sinker for the cure. Um, I think I I have spent a lot of money on them in the last couple of weeks. Matter of fact, I'm going to take a picture of everything cure related I've bought and put it on social media lately. But um. Man, once uh once they got their hooks into me, they uh they they had me for life. Uh, I feel like um I just have not quit listening to them and I'm just blown away by how talented Robert Smith is. You know, this is one that two two points I want to make before we get really into discussion on this. One, it's such an unlikely artist for you to like, mm-hmm. which I I I, I mean, I applaud you for getting into him and trying something different that I know is completely outside of your world of music. So I think that's cool. Number two, the people that do not know David personally, and even the ones that do know David personally, few people know this about him. I've seen this happen a few times. So it doesn't happen often, but it happens a few. He's always known that you're, you're, in this case, I'm the you're. He's always known that you're a fan of a certain band, never really listens to him, doesn't think he likes them. And then one day it hits him. And my, my buddy David doesn't just say, yeah, I think I, I, I like I finally got an album. I liked it. I think I'm going to go ahead and, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of start periodically. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back, back catalog. And, and it's, it's a gradual process you expect. It doesn't happen. When a band hits David, it's obsession. <laughs> and he buys every last album. And you get, and, and, and I, I love David. I mean, this is, this is, this is, I'm not complaining. I just think it's funny. David will go like four or five texts to you every single day. <laughs> like how great this band is that you've been listening to for years. I mean, and then, like I said, it hasn't happened often. The ones that come to mind is, is uh, REM, Gaslight Anthem, and The Cure. But it's funny. But this one, they may have sunk their claws into you more than REM and Gaslight as far as where it's like your whole focus. Well, I mean, I've bought three three Blu-rays. I've bought, <laughs> I've bought, uh, I got uh, Lowell Tolhurst's book. I'm a chapter in on it. Good, uh, it's good. You'll like that. I bought on. Uh, I bought the vinyl of uh, Disintegration, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, The Head on the Door, and then I bought um, Mixed Up, which was the 1990 remix album. I bought Torn Down, which is kind of like it. Um, actually got it in the mail today but then like the really cool thing i got it's and it's hard to find and i was going to try to buy you the cd version of it but it's just kind of hard to find and when you do find it it's not cheap they took their greatest hits album and re-recorded it acoustically and that doesn't sound like that should really work but it is so good because on some of those especially some of those early cure albums the production is a little bit muddy at times and sometimes it's hard to make out what robert smith is saying on these acoustic versions, you can really you can really hear it, and that's the kind of the, that's the the coolest thing I've gotten. But yeah, man, um, it's a band that has like distinct eras, and it, I mean, it's not like they just slowly go into one. You know, you had the first album, which I think most people would see is kind of like a traditional post punk album coming out of England, and then the next three, uh, is it Seventeen Seconds, Faith, and Pornography? Man, they just make you want to slit your wrist in a good way. Uh, and then, you know, they come out with the top, which 
of all the albums I've listened to from like their like quote unquote classic age, the top is the one that I think is my least favorite. I do I love Shake Dog Shake and the Caterpillar on there, but then they go from that to the Head on the Door, which is for me is as good as Disintegration, and then they have the double album Kiss Me Kiss Me Kiss Me, which um. I'll be honest with you, it shouldn't have been a double album. I think they could have whittled that down to one. Uh, some some instrumental tracks on there, and of course, Disintegration, which is their their masterpiece. And then you go from that to um, the uh, all mixed up, the, I mean mixed up, the remix album, then to Wish, which to me is, that's not, that's not Sad Cure, that's a lot of Happy Cure on it. And then of course, the, the final four albums, get more and more honestly guitar oriented and at times i wouldn't even think you know it's more just like an alternative record um and i was reading on i think it was the self-title album they used a lot of people at the time that were uh i think in the new metal movement to like produce it and 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 help with the production on it but uh yeah man i've just i've gotten into them and the the last three albums are the ones that i i've listened to but i haven't really sunk my teeth in but i've got a playlist on spotify of the cure and i think it's 160 songs long uh <laughs> stuff that i like and i add to it and then they've got you know the b-sides out which i'm which I'm, I'm i'm getting into some of that but um i i i've just been floored by how much i like them and a buddy of mine at work's been trying to get me into them as well and he's like man i've been telling you about them for a long time I said, yeah so is chris i said sometimes what what got me started down this road was I watched the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and the first song they played was Shake Dog Shake. And I was like, hmm, this isn't how I envisioned The Cure really sounding, based on you know the, the stuff that I knew. That was last year. I went and got Disintegration and liked it, and then once this, um, you know, all this downtime hit, I went back to it, and I was like, you know what, I've got to go back and, and get into it. And it just, it hit me, it floored me. It's some of the most moving music and like I said, there are distinct periods of the band. So if if you're not you know if you're not into all the doom and gloom, don't listen to the first three or four albums, you know, and don't listen to Disintegration. But like Wish and uh, uh, the self-titled album and uh, Wild Mood Swings, th- those are kind of fun albums to listen to by Cure standards. But anyway, uh, yeah, they they've got me. I hope to go see them on tour, and uh, supposedly they've got a new album coming out. Yeah, they've been talking about the new album for a while. You know. The- I will tell you, somebody's listened to him for a long time, and myself, I, I agree with probably just about everything you said. I, the, I feel like pornography is when they hit their stride. You know that that's their first, in my opinion, anyway. That's their first great album. Yeah, you know, they had flirtations with you know greatness prior to that one, but that was the first one. And you know, I mean, some of that early stuff. Though on those early records, of course, were there's still some really, really good music on those. But the head on the door, I couldn't agree more that that's. And you've heard me say this before. I got disintegration. Yeah, if you're going to commit that kind of time and just sit there and listen to it, I mean, darken the room and get a bottle of red and put that on, and it's that's a solid listen straight through. But if I'm not in the the mindset and I'm not ready for that record. I can go to the head on the door, which is probably just as good, but a totally different record. And that's the record that I think is just totally. Uh, and I got this. This was from a movie. I, I wish I could think of the movie that this 
was because I think you'd like it, Dave, if you haven't seen it. But um, this kid, his older brother, introduces him to The Cure. And he's holding the album. And it takes – it's it's present day in this movie. It's, it's during the time – well, I mean, it's during the time of uh, – it's in the 80s. And he, he, gives, he pulls up a copy of uh, Head on the Door, and he refers to it as Happy Sad. And that's that record. And I think that record is absolutely brilliant. Disintegration, yes. I mean, that's their masterpiece. Kiss Me, I agree. I think that should be a, a single album because there are throwaway, throwaway tracks. Um, the way it opens, though, I, the Kiss is one of my favorite Cure songs. Uh, it just blows me away. And you already know that, you know, I've said this a thousand times, but uh, Just Like Heaven, that's my favorite song of all time. So I do still have a strong appreciation for Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. But for me, it's kind of that uh, pornography through wish, or as far as the, the time span that really got me. That's Those are the albums I really like. But some of the stuff that came after, Blood Flowers, which was trying to do, I think, Disintegration Part 2, it's a good record. It's not Disintegration, but there's some there's some good tunes on it. Yeah, if you if you're out there listening and and I mean, if you if you listen to it with an open mind, there, there's something in there for everybody. It's kind of like uh, Dream Car. Um, I, I I think um, I think if you're out there and you're like, oh, they're so doom and gloom, or it's too synth heavy, or whatever. It, yes, there's there's a lot of keyboards. There's a lot of guitar on on these uh, on these songs. And Robert Smith is just a great. Songwriter, I've just been reading more and more about him, and like I said, I got Tollhurst's book that I'm going to start. Well, I'm like a chapter in, and uh, yeah, I got that uh, that the 40th anniversary concert at Hyde Park, uh, the other concert where they play one song from every album. I forget the name of it, and then I got the Dark Trilogy, which is where they play Pornography, Disintegration, and Blood Flowers all the way through. Uh, I got that, and um, yeah, I'm uh. I'm I'm pleasantly I'm pleasantly surprised by how much I like them. I, I've talked about them so much at work with my buddy that I think he's getting kind of tired of me talking about them. But, <laughs> I, but I was like, oh, you should see all my group texts that I've got going. <laughs> but if you if if you're out there and you get the chance and you somehow stumble upon that acoustic greatest hits album, it is so good and it's it's kind of like you know you know I've talked a lot about um, the when Ryan Adams covered uh, Taylor Swift's album. Like it just proves to you how good of a songwriter she really is, you know. Because he he just changed some some arrangements up for the most part, you know. And on those acoustic songs, they play them true to the true to the the recorded versions, just acoustically. And and the the vocals, I think, really stand out. So if, if you got a little extra coin and fi- come across that, um, I highly highly recommend it. And along with that, uh, since we've been at home, Chris, we obviously have a lot of time to watch Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. And I feel like I've come to the end of Netflix. Like, I think I've hit, like, the end of it. I don't think there's anything left to watch. But uh, on Apple TV uh, a couple weeks ago, the Beastie Boys documentary dropped. And I watched it, I think, the day that it came out. And uh, I would say my Beastie Boys knowledge is just slightly below average. Um, uh fairly familiar with them up through um ill communication but after that i honestly didn't didn't know much more than like uh 
intergalactic and stuff that was on TV. But I know you've read the book and you've always been a big fan of them. And um, I thought it was one of the most well done music documentaries. And I'm a music documentary nut, and it's on up there, probably in my top five. Well, it was creative, and it was creative in the way that they did it from a theater. And I mean, for all intents and purposes, like it's shot live as a documentary. And you, I don't. I'm not saying it hasn't been done before, but I haven't seen it before. And Spike Jones, who did the film, he he has a long connection to the Beastie Boys back before he really was anybody. I think he was just kind of a skate kid back in L.A. And I don't remember. They talk about it in the book, but I don't remember how they connected with him. But what they did in that film was an abbreviated. It was just an abbreviated version of the book. It was the same thing. The stories, they all come directly from that book. And if you are a Beastie Boys fan and you enjoyed Beastie Boys' story that was on on uh, Apple TV, then I would highly recommend getting Beastie Boys' book because it's more in de- it's more in depth. And you know, I I told uh, I told my girlfriend we're starting to, we're going to start to watch this, and I, and she's not into music. And boy, she picked the wrong person. No joke, <laughs> but. I mean, she doesn't get it. I mean, I know. I mean, I'm, your your wife, I'm sure, doesn't yeah. either. I mean, she just doesn't get it. And that, that's fine. But I told her, I said, I, I think you'll like this. And and the reason why I thought she'd like it is I knew that that uh, that bond that they had. The fact that they were, you know, and they say it in the film, that just like they say it in the book. They spent more time together than they did with their families. They were, you, of all these bands that come together, it end up I think a lot of times we think with bands that hey they're these friends and they start out in the garage as, as buddies and and they're bros they're gonna stick together it's not the way it usually works it's usually they're just trying to find like-minded musicians they may be nothing alike and they hate each other and that's why they fall apart but these three guys just always were close always were friends and that moment when Adam Horvitz sits on the stage and and starts to cry, you know, talking about Yalk was just that was I was emotional. I mean, uh, uh, my, my my girlfriend like I think she said like two or three different times in the movie she was starting to to tear up mm-hmm. watching it, and that's what I just really loved about it. They seem like genuine guys. They seem like good guys, and. I'm just a fan of their music. And if you're a fan of documentaries and you're like, like David and you're just at best average, there's still enough in it to make you like it. It's good. And that's what I love about these documentaries. That's why I've, I've talked before about the, like, I think that when I'm talking about my girlfriend, not being into music, I think she would even find an appreciation. And I know this sounds crazy, but I think she could even find an appreciation for the Godfathers of hardcore the agnostic front documentary. And the reason, just that bond that you see between between Roger and Stigma. But, um, yeah, this was... By the way, talking about like punk in New York and all, did you notice in there when they were talking about um, opening for a band, they said, is either the Circle Jerks or the Misfits? I'm going to say the Misfits because I like the Misfits better. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was cool, the bond. It, it, they, it reminds me of... Which, if you watch what I think is another just amazing documentary that Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, 
it reminds me of Rush, and it reminds me of R.E.M. They all had too much respect for one another and love for one another to let it go down a bad path. And they all, you know, it, you know, you Rush basically ended. Rush could, I mean, I'm not a big Rush fan, but I, that documentary is one of my favorites of all time. They could have easily gone another seven or eight years, but you know, Neil Peart didn't want to do it, and they could have gone on without him. I'm sure Mike Portnoy could have filled in nicely for him, but they chose not to. Um, same way with kind of like REM. I've heard one of the reasons they broke up was they just didn't want to carry on for the sake of carrying on. They had too much respect for each other and for the music. And so um, I respect that the Beastie Boys haven't done anything without him. And uh, there's just a genuine love between all of them. And uh, it was a perfect mix of sad and funny. And they never let the sad go too long without some kind of self-deprecating joke, which, it, I, which it, I really liked. Well, that's the thing. How and they're funny, but how great a storytellers are they? Especially, they were both great, but especially Mike Diamond. He yeah. He talks. He did like I think Adam talks even more than Diamond, but Diamond I thought was an even better storyteller. They were just they were great, great storytellers. And one thing about that, one thing that just popped up when you talk about not going on and you know, and they didn't do anything else. This is, I know this is like a crazy story, but I actually read about it in the book, and then I saw this again recently. The last record they, they released was called, I believe it was called the Hot Sauce Com- Committee, I want to say, Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. Well, you think Part 2, and I always wondered, why did they do a Part 2? Well, they actually recorded a Part 1, and they lost it. They absolutely lost it. And so they said, yeah, if they can somehow recover that and find it, they will release it. Wow. But yeah. Yeah. I just it, thought it was I just thought it was them being funny. No, no, not at all. And you know, the thing too what's what's so just fascinating about about it to me is those guys who just seemed like these just these white rappers out of New York that the way that they started and they did something so different when they came out with Paul's boutique. And then they go way different. And they become musicians. Yeah, they they weren't a rap group. Right. They were they were musicians who would do rap, jazz, hardcore, funk, all that stuff. Um, great, great film. Hey, by the way, I think you people are catching on by now. We don't have a topic. Just let's throw that out there. Yeah, we're just <laughs> we just just a lot going on, and we're bored. So, um, you t- you sent me a text the other day. Said you've been listening to. Uh, Greg Dooley's side project, The Twilight Singers, a lot. Well, yeah, and it's not really even a side project. Uh, it's It was his band after the Afghan Wigs. And I don't think I ever gave him enough of a, a chance. But as I've gotten more and more and more into his music, I uh, you know the, new, the solo record came out recently. I, I just started going back deeper and really giving those Twilight Singers records a chance. And... Yeah, they're different. They're they're different than Afghan wigs, but it's almost like, um, you, you take that solo record and it's like he was taking elements of the Afghan wigs, elements of Twilight Singers, and molding them all together. And even with the the new Afghan wigs, it's great, but it has I think some of the stuff he was doing with the Twilight Singers carried over into that, because he he didn't when they came out that that first wigs album. Due to the beast, the first one in 16 years, it didn't sound like 
where they left off with 1965. It didn't sound like that record. It, it didn't sound like the 90s, that's for sure. And I, I think he just kind of morphed a lot of that sound, brought it into the Afghan Wazer. Yeah, I've, I've been listening to a lot of that lately. Um, Greg Dooley is just, I mean, he's absolutely become one of my very, very, very favorite artists. And, you know, whether it's the stuff he does, the wig stuff, which is obviously is my favorite, the solo stuff, the stuff with the Twilight Singers, the stuff he's done with Lanigan, Mark Lanigan, you know, of uh, Screaming Trees. Uh, I mean, I, I just love all of his work. Speaking of which, am I crazy? Did you see, is it Liam Gallagher and Mark Lanigan have gotten into it on Twitter? I haven't seen that. Um, so I don't know. I think wait, wait, which, which Gallagher? Liam. <laughs> huh. Um, <laughs> that's one of the. Uh, gr- I'm I'm pretty sure that's a uh, that's a thing. Uh, anyway, speaking of Mark Lanning, but yeah, so you've been listening to a lot of the Twilight Singers, and then uh, one of your favorite bands, American Aquarium, Amer- American Aquarium, just released a new album. Yeah, so they came out with a new album. It's called Lamentations, and. Um, I uh, I think it's great. I mean, I really do. I, I think it's I, – I don't want to give any of these of, like, hey, it's the best one they've done or it's a top three or anything because I, I don't know. I've been listening to it now for a week. But it's really, really good. And um, the one thing that kind of stood out to me on this one is uh, the um, – I was thinking. I was thinking about how, you know, American Aquarium, and, and uh, I know you. Uh, we talked about this, David. And for those that don't know, you know, American Aquarium. It's like it was a weird sounding band name. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Wilco. And it, the uh, opening track off Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is "I'm Trying to Break Your Heart." First lyric of the song, he mentions American Aquarium, an American Aquarium, and that's where it comes from. You you knew that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, thought you did. Well, kind of what stood out to me with this with this album is um, the opening track on it is uh, it's called "Me and Mine" (parentheses Lamentations). It kind of has a feel like I'm trying to break your heart. It's a it's a laid back song. It's slow. It's very long. And I always thought that I'm trying to break your heart, much like this me and mine. It's uh, they're unique. They're they're definitely unique ways to open a record. Um, you can almost you can actually even kind of go back to being there with misunderstood. But they're they're different ways to open an album, and I think that's kind of what that's that's the way I think of that song. It's my favorite one on the album. I would think me and mine definitely. But but then he's got um. Like the luckier you get, just is a great one. Starts with you, which uh, starts with you is. You know, and I know I put this on our. Um, I know I put this on our uh, social media. Just I guess just yesterday, where he says, "Sad songs they make me happy," and it comes from "Starts with You." That uh, that lyric in the song, he's talking about a a girl says, "I'm like, why do." Why do you? Why do all the song? Why do you sing all these sad songs about girls who did you wrong? And he said something like, "Sad songs are the only thing that make me happy." Yeah, sad things they make me happy. And I love that lyric. I love the lyricism on this album. 
Um, the day I learned to lie to you, I mean, that that's a just a gut wrenching one. The uh, how wicked I was, another one that I'm I'm assuming he's kind of basing off of having a daughter, and he's he's very open about the kind of life that he led, you know, before he got sober, and. It almost sounds like it's, a, and then the song he's saying, "Please don't let her know how wicked I was." Uh, it, it's a, it's a very deep record. BJ has, has um, he's fed, talked a lot about his sobriety. I think he's been sober for, I think about six years now, and so there's more of that. There's one called Six Years Come September." Um, it's just a really, really good record. If, if 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 lyricism is something for you, you like the kind of Americana slash rock music. Check this out. I mean, I know, I know we've got a couple of listeners, David, that have said that this is one of their, of the stuff they've learned from our podcast. This is the one of the ones that they really, really like and appreciate. So, those of you who have not listened to them, jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, and uh, what's his name? BJ. He does a lot of stuff on Instagram Live and stuff like that, especially during COVID. So. Uh, definitely a fan-friendly band, and it seems like they have. He's really toured, toured, and toured, and kind of paid his dues, and it looks like it's starting to pay off for him. It is. I mean, he's really. I mean, it, it's. I mean, he's. You look at just the people that are always commenting and liking him on his on his page, and it's. It's kind of all the who's who of the great songwriters, the ones that you and I love. It's all those all those guys, um, and it really is. I mean, his lyrics have depth. His songs are just. Good. Shooter Jennings did the record too, by the way. He produced it, and um, you know it seems like Shooter's got the hot hand right now. So I was about to say he's kind of the go-to guy. Um, yeah. So it's it's a, and he sings you know he sings a lot about you know growing up in his small town in the tobacco industry and um, it's almost like you know when I listen to this record it, it's it's got the it's more it's it's a band and it's a it's got all the big instrumentation, but it's almost kind of got the depth and the down and outs of Springsteen's Nebraska. It's almost kind of how I feel about this record when I listen to it. It's, um, it's almost comparable as far as the, the, the feel and the emotion that he's going forward to Nebraska. Hey, um, I was right. There is a Mark Lanigan, Liam Gallagher Twitter feed. Oh God. And apparently, uh, Mark Lanigan has a book out and he kind of rips Oasis and it's because Screaming Trees opened for Oasis in 96 and uh, somebody asked him who was opening and he referred to them as the Howling Branches <laughs> instead of the Screaming Trees the Howling wow. Branches and apparently uh, Mark Lanigan has not let that go but anyway you can go on Twitter and, and find uh, all of <laughs> I'm gonna have to look that up. I'm gonna have to look it up. Hey, but while we're while we are just on on new music too, I I, I did want to point out a guy we've had on the podcast before, Ryan Hamilton. He uh he put out I believe it was last Friday. He put out an EP, and um, this EP I'm trying to find it. Um, man, I'm not gonna try to say the name of this EP, but um. But anyway, it's uh, there's four songs on it, and they are covers of country songs by female artists, largely from I would say the the '90s. The the big like the big one on there is uh, Martina McBride's 
Independence Day. It's got that Judd it, song on it. Yeah, and then it's got you know, Heads Carolina, Tails California. Um, it's really, really, really good. Hey, I, I love it. It's just interesting takes on those covers. Um, I think, and I think, I think it was kind of creative too. Uh, oddly, you know, I mean, you have you have Ryan Adams. We talked. You said mentioned him earlier with doing Taylor Swift, but somebody just taking country songs of female artists and doing an EP and reworking them just like Ryan Adams did. Uh, that, that was kind of different. Uh, really, really good. It reminded me a lot of Matt Nathanson's uh, Def Leppard thing that he did. I can see that. Um, yeah, I listened to it through. I love that Judd song. Was it Grandpa Tell Me About the Good Old yeah. Age? Yeah, it's um, good. That's a, really that's good. A, that's, a, that's a good song. You wonder, was this planned or was he just sitting around bored? I don't know. I, I don't know. But uh, it's... I mean, I just think he's a really talented guy that you know, we said it before. We said it when he had him on as an interview. I think it's, uh, he's just one of those ones that unfortunate, unfortunately he's just not taken off and I think he should, but I guess he's got it, you know, he's got it better than, than most artists because it's always weird when this happens, but an American artist and he's got a really good good following and packing, you know, some, some venues in the UK, but yet in America, nobody really knows who he is. It's, it's weird how that happens. We know that was the case for Kings of Leon forever. Uh, yeah, that was the I case know. with uh, rival sons forever. And both of those bands stuck with it. And in case of, uh, Kings of Leon, you know, they're, they're arena bands and rival sons is doing, you know, 3000 seat theaters now. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it'll maybe it'll take off for him. I mean, the guy's really talented. I like his voice, um, and I just thought this was a cool little, cool little EP. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it was something he went in there and threw together real quick, and you know, and it, maybe it was something he needed to to do. Just uh, got time on his hands and can't go on the road, which I guess David's nice little segue. I mean, we That's we talked last time. Yeah, last time we talked, I know we've talked a lot about supporting the artists you love, and I'm going to continue that. You know, some of these guys we've talked about, you know, Ron Hamilton, you know, American Aquarium, they, their main source of income, it's it's gone. And you talk about the way that Ron Adams built, or uh, I'm sorry, American Aquarium, the way they built up their, their career, the way B.J. Barham did that, Road Warrior, touring relentlessly, touring like, Lucero did. Most bands aren't willing to put in that kind of work, and he did it, and it paid off. And now he's become a name. And fortunately, now he's become enough of a name to where he's probably not struggling as much as a lot of artists. But you take a guy like Ron Hamilton that we talked about. This is really hurting them. You know, all so many of the artists we love, that you and I love, they're not big, and so their income is touring. And Early on, when you and I started talking about this, we're thinking, wow, this is really going to impact them for the next couple of months. Well, man, I don't know if we're going to get shows at all this year. And I know now there, I know there's one coming up in Arkansas, some kind of a country concert. That's uh, the, it's and, the lead singer of Bishop Gunn is going to do it. Okay. And they're they're going to do, I mean, I think it's like a, maybe like 10, 11,000 seat venue and they're gonna have about maybe two thousand in there and it, it, it is just weird i i don't know is that what we're gonna do now is, is that what we're gonna do for the next year or and then you're starting to hear here's talks of and i don't know how it'd work but 
you know, drive-in concerts. And even if that is the case, I mean, unless you charge just an exorbitant amount, exorbitant amount of money, how are these people going to artists going to make any money? Right. If you do like a drive-in and you're going to get let say 200 cars come in, that's not a lot of people. And and the meet and greets are over. That's not coming back anytime soon. Um, no, I, I mean not until I mean once once there's a vaccine, I think this will be behind us. Yeah, but I mean until back. then. Yeah, but you, so so yeah, we're talking right now. I mean, we're two months into this. I know they had said it'd, it'd be at least a year, so maybe we could have a vaccine in nine or ten months, maybe if we're lucky. But nine or ten months—that's going to take us all the way through twenty twenty. Yeah, which I means was nothing is happening. Yeah, I was supposed to go see Wilco two weeks ago, and obviously it got postponed. And today I got an email said it will not be rescheduled. I'm getting my money back. Um, the Crows still haven't said that their tour is canceled. I just can't imagine that going on. I mean, I've, I paid a lot of money for you know second row tickets and meet and greet to see them in Arkansas, but I, I just don't see how you know I don't see how that's going to take place. Um, I saw where Iron Maidens canceled all of their stuff for the year. Zach Brown did that. Uh, Roger Waters, you know, had this big tour planned, and he said I, he said that COVID nineteen is probably going to retire him. He's like, I don't want to be eighty years old and on a tour, you know. And obviously, he's on up there in age. Um, I just don't see right now how the powers that be are going to be comfortable with five hundred people jamming into a, a rock club. And uh, you know, and going to see and going to see somebody, and it's going to hurt the American aquariums. It's going to hurt you know uh, the drive-by truckers. Um, you know, it's going to hurt the Ryan Hamiltons. A lot of bands like that 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 honestly have worked real hard to get where they are, and then to have it kind of kind of taken away from them. That's why uh, you know I, I know you've bought a lot of those like concerts online, and uh, like uh, I bought. Um, um, Blue Mountain's debut album on vinyl directly from Kerry Hudson. Uh, by the way, he said he would come on this podcast in the future, which would be really cool. Uh, I've bought a lot of albums uh, online, uh, trying to do what I can. I've even, like, uh, I don't know about you, I've seen some people that posting on Facebook, they were just going to play for tips. I've tried to help them out, you know, 5 or $10 here or there. But uh, Ryan, Hamilton, Ryan Hamilton's done that. Jer- Jeremy, you know, uh, Jeremy and the Harlequins. Jeremy's doing that on Facebook three, three times a week. And he's just playing for tips. Well, I tell you, um, Johnny Colt, who was the bass player for the Black Crows on their first four albums, and then left the Black Crows and was the bassist for Train, and uh, was actually bassist for Leonard Skinner for a tour or two. He's an artist, and he has a he has a he, he's done really well for himself in the business world. So what he's doing on Instagram is he's partnered up with partnered up with Feed America, and so he paints he calls them postcards i think they're like postcard sized paintings and he only paints one and it's an original and if you go and donate five or ten dollars to feeding america screenshot that and send that to him he sends you that one-of-a-kind piece of art in the mail uh so he's doing what he can to uh, and it's johnny colt on instagram if you want to go follow that but um like ryan adams i saw ryan adams was taking cover request tonight for tips and the money's going to the cdc and stuff like that so people that have money are doing the right thing and donating it to uh you know worthy causes and a lot of them are giving it to their their crew and their band i know uh mike cooley and patterson the drive-by truckers uh this week did concerts in home charge 15 dollars a piece um and so well bj barham of american aquarium those he did the all of the american aquarium albums 
front to back, including Lamentations about three weeks, three, four weeks before it was even released. And there was a fee on stage it to watch it. And I'm sure he probably kept those, which he deserves that. But every bit of the tips he was doing between, I think he was kind of rotating them by shows because he was doing a, a different album each night. And he was dividing it between contributing to restaurants in the uh, Raleigh, North Carolina mm-hmm. area, which is where he lives, and his band. Like one the night that I was watching, I think, well, I watched a couple of them, but one night, every bit of the tips were going to his band. Michael Graves is doing that kind of stuff now to where I know the stuff that he's doing, it's supporting his band as well. You know, and I think that's really stand up of these guys because somebody like Michael Graves that, you know, he, I know he's not selling out arenas, but he has a name that he will be able to always get musicians to come join him. And so if these people walk because they didn't have money, they can find somebody else, but he's trying to hang on to them and he's trying to take care of them the best of his ability. And he's doing, uh, he's he's doing what Michael Graves is doing. One, you talk about all the different things people are doing. He's doing one where he has got a few different, like one where he'll do thirty minute, you know, request acoustic, let a, a small number get in. But one of the ones he's doing is, um, is he'll do a one on one, a Skype call with somebody, and they're really not even that expensive. And so different things like that. Yeah, people are just trying to get creative. Yeah, people do doing uh, online guitar lessons, piano lessons. Yeah, yeah. I saw. I, I've seen several of them doing that as well. And uh, I think I think Tracy Guns of LA Guns, he's been doing guitar lessons. Which, by the way, the new LA Guns song is really good. You know, you say that. I listened to it this afternoon. It doesn't sound like LA Guns, it, but um, I mean, it's it's a different style than what you think of that as far as like their sleaze rock. It's really, really good. It's kind of like what the people talked about, like the Hollywood vampires days. You mm-hmm. know, it's uh, it's good though, man. It's a really, really good song. If you like LA Guns, I don't think it's like sleaze rock, just you know, or bubblegum pop and all that. It's not. It's a dark, slow. It's a, one of the better LA Guns songs I've heard in a very long time. Probably the best thing I've heard from them since they got back together. But and, and there you go. There's another band right there. You know, I was listening to Ricky Rackman and Ace Von Johnson, who plays guitar of um, for LA Guns. I was listening to them doing a podcast talking about the misfit Sam Hain and Danzig. And there you go. You got two guys right there. Ricky Rackman, whose life is, he's not a musician, but it's based around music, around NASCAR and all that. He said, he's starting to struggle right now. You think about somebody like Ace Von Johnson, which is not a top-tier person. He's struggling. It makes you wonder, like these guys, I mean, I guess, can they can they even get unemployment? I think it may depend on the state you live in and some other things. Cause I, I've, I've wondered that. Because, you know, the fact that they are, they really are. They're professional musicians. They should be able to, to get unemployment. But I, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's, it's a weird state of affairs. I don't know when it's coming back. I, I don't think we're going to see it back to, I think we it will go back to normal. But I don't think it'll be until there is a vaccine. And which means we're probably looking at it the earliest about this time of year from now. The things start resuming and going back to normal. And I too, you know, I have tickets to Brian Fallon and I'm just, he rescheduled that for July. And oh. I expect any day that there's going to be a cancellation 
And, and then he started thinking, what about all the people that bought tickets to, like, you and I have done this several times, uh, I know, for both concerts, um, sporting events, we go off StubHub. Well, if we bought from the venue, like I did, Kessler Theater for Brian Fallon, or we bought through Ticketmaster, all that, I'm sure we'll be able to get the money back. StubHub's not giving you your money back, which I think is really shitty, by the way, but they're not giving you your money back. Yeah. You know, so there's going to be a lot of people just – People that are unemployed right now that could really use the, the $300 they spent on a concert. They could use that money back, and they're not getting it. Well, my wife's an attorney, and she said there's people litigating stuff for the next 10 to 15 years because of all this. And I, I fully see like a class action lawsuit. And one of the things that Live Nation was rumored to try to try was going to try to pull off was we're not going to give people refunds, uh, going to postpone it. If you can't go to the show, tough. And I think they're kind of walking that back a little bit but you know the hammer is going to fall any day now on that motley crew Def leopard poison tour just call that canceled i mean seriously yeah. as many people that were going to be going into those those baseball arenas that's canceled if you could start putting that look at doing 2021 like a lot of these european metal festivals and all that that have done there they've just gone ahead and completely canceled it they're going to do it in 21 i think concert prices concert tickets are going to drop dramatically next year well, I, I, I'm sure, you know, it's just like even, it, yes, I'm sure they will, you know, because people just like going into restaurants, people are scared to go in. Of course, I'm not. I mean, I've already been to two restaurants this week since we opened up this week. <laughs> I was dying to get out. But, yeah, but, um, but there's good, but you, you have, everybody's going to be competing for arenas and dates. That, and that, then people, you know, so many people have lost their job, don't have that discretionary income, whereas like, you know. Motley Crue and them, it's pretty easy for them to charge what they did and, and get people to pay. But now a lot of those people aren't going to be able to afford that. And so I, I think I think the market's going to correct itself. And I was listening to uh, Doc McGee say he thinks that like a lot of the like ticket gouging that goes on with like Ticketmaster and all of that, they're going to have to drop their fees because people just aren't going to have the money to pay for it. And there's going to be such a battle for that discretionary income. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a weird weird thing. Well, David, before we wrap up, I do let's we've talked enough about negative. I did have one thing too that when, he, when he, you and I had kind of said the things we wanted to talk about. I got one other one, and it'll go out on just kind of a happy note. I'm gonna give everybody as they're quarantined right now, and uh, maybe looking for something to watch. I'm not sure how you can find this. I don't know what it's on. I saw it on HBO, but Blinded by the Light. And uh, this is a movie that's based off of a true story. It's a uh, Pakistani kid. Uh, I say kid. He's um, like about 16, I think, in the movie, 16, 17. And from a very traditional Pakistani family living in London in the 80s. And Springsteen's music, you know, Springsteen, the, Springsteen, the song Blinded by the Light, it just really makes an impact on him. And... Um, you think about the song Born to Run about just setting out, setting your own path. And that's really what this movie is. It's Springsteen is such an influence on what he does, Springsteen's music. And it's a very happy, uplifting movie. So if you want a, a movie that you can watch with your wife or your girlfriend or, hey, I, maybe you're a woman listening to this and your boyfriend or husband is one of those weirdos that doesn't like music. Well, Put this one on. I think they'll enjoy it. 
it's it's a good movie. I watched it the other day. I agree. Um, Chris, I'm gonna let you throw us out this week. You got a song pick. Yes. So we talked about new music. I've talked about a lot of things that I like, and the American Aquarium is one that I'm just absolutely wearing out. So what we're going to do, we're going to play one of my favorite cuts from the record. You know, we talked a lot about the Cures music and Happy Sad. And and then I said BJ has a song where he's saying sad songs, they make me happy. Well, this is the one where he says that in. Um, so let BJ tell you about sad songs making him happy. This is American Aquarium off the new album, Lamentations. The track, it starts with you. Enjoy. Yeah. 